You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life and home, as well as give you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created a safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you, bringing you clarity and solution with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversation with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Panel, And today I have a Kathleen Cawley, who is a new author. And so I'm excited to talk to her about her book on parenting, parenthood, and such. And so Kathleen, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've loved your your podcast. It's really wonderful. Oh, wonderful. So as I always like to start, I like to have my guest define what the art of parenting means to them. Okay, so I'm going to tweak it a little bit and give you the art of parenthood. Haha, okay. Parenthood and parenting are, are deeply intertwined, but we tend to focus a lot on parenting, and there's some parts of parenthood that don't get acknowledge. So I want to give you what I think is one of the main parts of the art of parenthood, which is just embracing the massive life change and massive personal growth that you go through when you transition from an adult to a parent. And the understanding, if you if you kind of really embrace that, you can understand that, you know, all growth and all change comes with some loss and some pain. And that's okay. And that's normal. And it goes away. And um, it leaves your life richer in the end. And I think if we go into parenthood, understanding that we're going to go back and forth between just stunning joy and feeling like, oh, I feel horrible. And that that's normal. And that that's something that passes as we gain um, more skill at growing into parenthood, that I think that's one of the best things we can do to embrace that new time. Hmm, beautiful. Thank you for that. And and it is such a, you said, massive growth and, and you know, self-development. It really is. And, you know, you've got no choice but to go with it. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so before we, we get into our conversation, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to uh, write this book and do the work that you're doing today. Well, I'm a physician assistant, and I practiced mostly family medicine, pediatric and adult medicine, um, for almost 18 years, and then met my husband late in life. I was um, 38 when we met. We were 39. I was 39 when we got married, and we quickly fell into fertility treatment, and that was five years of just, you know, it's just very, um, it it rips the heart out of you going through that much fertility treatment. And, um, and then we were very lucky and, you know, we, we were successful. And then at age 45, I had twins (laughs) and I was completely overwhelmed. (laughs) So 
I found tremendous help and support from a twins multiple support group called the Mid-Peninsula Parents of Multiples. And I would go on their forum every day asking for help and advice. And I got so much wonderful support and help and advice on really concrete things. And then slowly over time, um, I became the one, you know, writing to other people and helping helping other people, other new people coming in as I got more experienced. And uh, a lot of people on the forum, you know, told me to write a book. And so I did. I basically compiled everything that I had written over four or five years, which was a lot. <laughs> um, and um, and kind of looked at all these these topics that would come up again and again that often weren't addressed in other books. And then I wanted to address those things. And at the same time, I am a relentless reader, relentless researcher. My mom's phrase has always been that if you don't know what to do, get more data. So I would research, research, research. And so out of all this, um, grew a book, but it took, it took 10 years to birth that book. (laughs) Um, because there was a lot of stopping and starting, stopping and starting for family things. And, you know, you know, of course the whole year of COVID, you know, homeschooling. And so it took a while to, to pull it all out. Um, but I really wanted to be able to, you know, reach people with some of the support that I had gotten, um, from people, uh, from other parents when I had needed it. Right. Right. And it's so important to have those support groups. So I'm glad that you found that. And I know we have, uh, a support group of multiples here that I've actually uh, spoken at several times. And I know they're very, very helpful to each other. So uh, wonderful. And, and, you know, I say this just for all new parents, like seek out your community. It is so, so important. So yes, in this book, uh, Navigating the Shock of Parenthood, and I love the way you put shock in all caps, because I think it is a big jolt that we get, right? And maybe also, especially, you know, later in life, like you've, you've kind of settled into your, you know, adult life, and then ta-da, you've got these two little people, not one, but two. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about what you felt was missing in parenting books, because I know you mentioned about, you know, there's a lot of information about kind of the technical aspects, you know, whether it is feeding and sleeping and, and all of that, but there's not much about the emotional and psychological changes that we go through in parenthood. So I'd love if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, that there's it's it, there's emotional component, there's psychological component, and then there's also there's coming to terms with uh, with uh, the way society is set up in terms of um, can you can you actually build the uh, parenthood you were planning on building, you might find you can't afford the childcare that you thought you were going to be able to afford, or you might not be able to, or, you know, you might wind up with the child in, in the NICU and that changes, you know, all kinds of things. So there's so many different things that come up. And certainly, um, uh, I think one of the biggest things is that the way we have things set up in our culture these days, a lot of women struggle with the fact that they have, um, been encouraged through their life to go and develop their professional life and develop their independence and uh, their career and ideas of all these um, interests, you know, their, their life's what I call their life's industry. 
And then the minute they become a mother, those things somehow become really hard to hold on to. There's so many ways that we make it hard for women to be able to still just be a human being as well as a mother. And so that's one thing that I think women are often surprised with how hard that is the way we have our society set up where we so it's so hard to find childcare and and all these other supports that we need. I think also uh right now there are big changes in how gender roles and expectations for gender roles are changing. And if we don't have conversations about some of those things ahead of time, then sometimes those things can sneak up on you as well. So you may have, you know, really kind of envisioned a much more equal sharing of child care roles and then wind up falling into a very traditional male-female set of, you know, pattern. Um, and so, you know, that's another thing that has to be talked about and dealt with. And, and and to their credit, I think many men these days want very much to be deeply involved. They don't always know how, um, but they I think they want very much to be deeply involved. So those are just some of the ways that I think that those types of outside influences can definitely affect um, how we envision parenting and how we want to parent. And at the same time, you know, all these things come up. You start seeing yourself parenting the way your parents parented. And if you've got a great parent, then that's great. But if you've got a parent who was a problem, was, 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 you know, not such a good parent, then you may find yourself doing things you don't really want to do and then trying to figure out how to do that, how to undo that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you bring up a great point because I think that's really a very important conversation to have also with your parenting partner is like, how were you raised and what did you like and not like about it? And because I think that that awareness before we, you know, are thrown into uh, parenthood is so important. I know personally, I didn't have that conversation. And, you know, I, I had also a child kind of later in life, I was 35, then 39. And those are not conversations we had. And once you start, you know, wanting to discipline or or feed or whatever, you you realize that you're wow, we're we're on different pages here. Like, how are we going to manage this? Uh, so I think that's a that's a very good point you bring up. One uh, one thing that that um, when you were speaking, you know, you were talking about how hard it is specifically for women, for mothers, um, in your in writing your book and, and researching, did you find like uh, kind of a utopian <laughs> society that would be more supportive of uh, maybe women who do have careers, who do have, you know, other interests before uh, becoming mothers and and how to stay on course. Yeah, it's called Finland. <laughs> Finland. Okay. No, because that's why I wanted, I was asking because, you know, I'm, I'm a dual, dual citizen and I, and I had a first child in, in France and then in the second one here. And it's very, very different, very, very different in how we're, we're taken care of, you know, the prenatal, uh, postpartum, all of that. And so I was interested to, to know in your research what you found. So tell us about Finland. Well, like many, like many other countries, um, uh, most other, you know, westernized countries have um, childcare around the corner, 
um, that's, you know, in some way, you know, high quality and yet financially accessible. And, um, and yeah, federally funded. Federally funded, is, yes. Exactly. Yes. Which we yes. did during World War II. We had high quality, federally funded childcare during World War II. But when the women, when, when the men came back and they wanted the women to go back home, they, they cut it off. So we can do it. Um, we've done it before. Um, but that plus, plus supports for, you know, I, I'm just appalled at times at the short period of time after childbirth that women have to go back to work. Um, it is, it is not easy on the body to go to, to, to grow a human being and then bring it into the world. And there are massive biological changes that are going on in your body during pregnancy and after pregnancy. And there's this tremendously important bonding period too that's going on. And and I just am appalled that we so many women are in the position where they where they have to go back long before their bodies are ready, long before their you know their relationship is ready. So better access to paid paternity leave. And and I really think that you know the uh, Sweden and Finland and and those places where they give you you can have like a year and it has to be divided between the men and the women uh, or the, the the partners I should say that have to share at least sixty forty um, and that forces the the whole business community to adapt to that way of life and that also means that women aren't going to be automatically penalized by saying oh they're going to go take a year off but you know it's actually It'll be six months off and the men are going to take time off too. So systems like that. And actually a lot of countries have tried variations on these things and they've figured out where the mistakes are and they've already done all the work for us. So we could just copy them. Um, and that plus then really good school systems um, and school systems that allow children to be, you know, young for a longer period of time, which I think is important. I think we start uh, being way too academic, way too early. So, uh, and then at the same time, you know, if you're also struggling with, you know, you can't make adjustments in your job because it would change your health care, or then, then you, you have less flexibility, you have less freedom to, to, to build the life the way you want it to, to, to be built. And so I think all of that infrastructure for, you know, for health care, um, that's nationalized health care and also nationalized um, elder care, that those are critical things in making a family really work in, you know, modern Western culture. Well, yeah, it's, it's called being pro family. I mean, having a, a system that is, that understands the need, uh, needs of families. And, and like you say, you know, it, it's, to me, it is outrageous and, and somewhat criminal to ask women to go back to work before they're healed. Like it, it's, it's a healing physically, you know, a healing process that, that we go through and it's important to respect that. Uh, for example, uh, in France, it is mandatory that you do uh, PT for the pelvic floor. Oh, really? To, yeah. Wow. Before you're allowed to go back to work. There are eight sessions that are just mandatory. Uh, you know, they're not pleasant, but they're necessary. And here, I feel like we don't even talk about no. that. And it's like, it is to me, it is just so disrespectful and, and criminal to let women think that this is just the way 
you know, oh, well, yeah, the, you know, you just gave a bit, you just gave birth. So yeah, you're going to pee when you sneeze. It's like, no, it does not have to be that way. And it is not okay. Um, so yeah, that, you know, big differences like that. I've got a huge diastasis rectile that's where your abdominal muscles separate okay from, okay i'm carrying twins and you know if i want to get it fixed i got to come up with my own fifteen thousand dollars to get it fixed so and it causes back pain and problems and you know but it's not covered because it's considered cosmetic so i mean that just <laughs> that's just more of it but, but you know what the, the other thing so i think some of where this comes from is you know certainly um you know about, you know, Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique. Yes. And we've fought for a long time against that feminine mystique and all of the restrictions that it put on us. And I think we've been successful in many of the before motherhood parts of that, of getting rid of that feminine mystique. Um, the idea that women can't do this or can't do that or, or, or are biologically predisposed to, you know, they must do this or something. But I think we have we have held on in our culture to kind of what I call the motherhood mystique, which is the leftover remnants of that. And and that motherhood mystique kind of allows society to say, well, you know, it's 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 a, it's motherhood. You know, this is what um, you're biologically determined to do. And so you need to go home. And the fact that, you know, you don't want, you're not here at work is just because you want to be at home and not because we haven't set up a structure in such a way that makes it possible for you to continue to be an intellectual person at the same time. So I think there's this leftover bit of kind of the motherhood mystique that we haven't really kicked out. And I think that's part of uh, our, our challenge. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you say this because just yesterday I visited a co-working space for women where there is childcare, which I thought was really, really great. And there's there's another one in town. So this is there's two of them. There's one that's that's for parents, but this one was specifically for uh, for women. And I think it's definitely a new trend where we're seeing the need, you know, for for <laughs> adults to get their work done, uh, you know, especially now that we are working more and more remotely. But then, you know, we we also want to make sure that our children are well taken care of. So these places have sprung up, which I, well, and, I think and is great. Need this too. The, exactly. The need this too because my, my husband um, was very, very. I mean, he was he was fully on board with having kids. He really wanted to have kids, and so, and he was fully on board with with. Um, diaper changes and feeding in the middle of the night and getting up in the middle of the night and, and everything with the babies. I mean, he was really, really very hands-on. Um, even though he had to go back to work, you know, two weeks after the babies were born, but he got under, he got an enormous amount of pressure to um, continue to come in super early and leave super late. And he had to really push back against that. Fortunately, he's someone who, you know, at his company who's very valued. And so you know, he was able to say, listen, I, if, you know, you want to keep me, I'm, I have a family now and I, I'll be here a hundred percent when I'm here, but, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to, I'm going to leave on time every day and I'm going to go home and be with my family. And that it was, he at first got a lot of guff from it. And unfortunately, I think the owner of the company got talked to by his wife <laughs> And he came back and he apologized actually to my husband. But that was, it was really, 
very, I remember that very clearly. It's very, very stressful for him. And, and in the first few years too, of, of, uh, when at first I, I didn't, I was not working much because I had severe carpal tunnel after the babies and couldn't work for a while. And when I did finally go back, my schedule seeing patients was very irregular and I never knew when I'd be done at the end of the day. So I couldn't pick up kids from daycare. So he had to do drop off and pick up. And then that meant that it was harder for him to, again, put in extra hours. So there was just all of these types of stresses that went on all the time. And that is something that, that men with live with too, because they're expected to have a life that exists only at work and to, and that, and then the, 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 range of what employers have started to feel like they can expect from their workers has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. They intrude more and more into our, into what should be family time and private time. And so they make more and more demands on these areas. And then it makes it harder for men to be present with their families. And they often want that rewarding connection with their families. And so these changes are good for everybody if we can make them happen. Definitely. No, I think it's a lot of pressure on working parents to be expected to, you know, give 150% of your time and energy to your work and still, you know, be be a good parent who, who is there, who's connected, who's participating, and so forth. Because, you know, we, we hear it over and over again, it goes by so fast, and it really, really does. So if you can at least have those, you know, first 10, 18 years that you can really devote to your parenting responsibilities is critical to me. But yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's big, big, big changes to be made, right? And, and so talk to me a little bit about uh, your husband and how he kind of lived through this, you know, what you call this shock of, of parenthood, like what, did you see a difference between him and yourself? Like you, I know you talked about the whole work um, ethics, but are, were there other, you know, places where, where he felt the shock? I think so before, before we had the, the babies, I remember uh, going for a walk and having a conversation with him and him being surprised that I wasn't sure I totally wanted to go back to work full time after having kids. And that surprised him because I'm an active feminist woman and I had a profession and, and, um, and I think it's because he didn't really understand how big the new job was going to be. <laughs> um, and that, and that how much of that, you know, I was still going to wind up doing, even if he was involved. Um, and I think, so I think that was one of the things that, that, you know, once the babies were actually there and as time went on that he began to realize just how important it is to be um, connected and there and how hard it is if you're both, you know, we tried a year of it with both of us working full time and we were just completely fried. And so, uh, and then I, I think he started to really value, you know, my being able to um, be home with the kids more. But I think also that first two weeks after the baby's home and none of us were sleeping. <laughs> um, that was, uh, that was definitely, I think an eye opening time for him, but he was pretty smitten right off the bat. You know, I, I, when the babies first came out, I looked at him and I'm like, okay, you know, great. 
take them away. <laughs> <laughs> like I was all I wanted. I had a horrible, horrible pregnancy, very difficult, you know, emergency C-section birth. And I was, I just wanted to get better. I just wanted to feel better. And so, but I could see on Kevin's face that he was absolutely smitten. He was just, he had fallen in love with him already. And so, and he knew he wanted to be hands-on from the very beginning. So he, and he's, he's an extremely high energy guy. He's like a really high energy guy. So he managed to kind of throw himself into it pretty deeply. That's wonderful. And and I know I, I will say like, I do uh, some uh, birth doula work and uh, it has been really delightful to see like how fathers show up, like men are really stepping up their game and, and, helping, you know, whether it's during the pregnancy, during the birth, uh, afterwards. And I, it, you know, not, not all, but I've seen more and more just really, like you say, really hands-on and really loving this new role and wanting to, to do well. So. Yeah. He's always said he would never give up those hard years for anything. That, you know, those, and he was, he was the main middle of the night person. Cause I don't do well there. Um, and also it was mostly as they got bigger, it was my son who was huge, who was the struggled with the middle of the night. And so he did that for a long time. And, uh, and he, he says, you know, uh, you know, all the time he said he would never give up those years that they were, they're absolutely worth it. Wonderful. So you, you mentioned something that, uh, you were both working full time for a year and that it really was hard. So for our listeners who might not have an option and that's just the way, you know, uh, the cards have been dealt and they need to deal with, uh, having, both work uh, outside the home or maybe even in the home. What are like some maybe, you know, words of wisdom that you would have on how to maybe prepare for that or be more organized so that you kind of survive those years? I think the the first thing to remember is that the the most intense years don't go on forever. And so sometimes if you can manage to get a lot of help in the beginning. Um, uh, just realize that it's not like you're trying to set things up that it's going to be like this forever. So I had one friend who um, sh- she and her husband, both professionals went back to work full time. Her uh, father-in-law came from overseas and lived at their house for a year. Um, and that was, I don't think they would have gotten back to work without that. So that, so if you can have, if you have a family that you can count on, if you have, um, that is just tremendously important. I think building friendships with people where you can is really important. It's easier once your kids are in school to make those friendships. For me, I found it harder when the kids were younger. You just don't have as much exposure to mothers unless you're going into a preschool situation. And um, I personally think that if you can, if you have more than, if you have only one child in, in care, then probably daycare is going to be cheaper. But if you have two children in day in daycare, often it's just as, just equally cost, less costly or the, or the same, similar to have a nanny. And if you have a nanny, then there's somebody who it just eases the transitions in the morning. You don't have to get the kids packed up and out of the door. Um, 
you don't have to race home quite as fast at the end of the day. Um, they can make sure the kids are fed before you get home, which lets you then kind of be able to decompress and just kind of focus on them a little bit when you get home. So if you can, then that is, a you know, absolutely, I think, one of the best choices that you can do if you can find yourself a really good nanny. Um, and then the other one is just is just calling in as much help and support as you can. There, you can you can get mother's helpers. So you can hire someone who is not at the cost of a nanny, but is a mother's helper who comes in for maybe just you know a couple hours every evening, just when you get home, to help with that transition. Maybe they're giving the kids a bath while you make dinner, or maybe they're making dinner while you give the kids a bath. That little bit there can make all the difference in the world. You can hire a neighborhood kid. For one, for a while, there was a next door neighbor who, a teenage boy who would come over and play with my my toddlers, um, and they go they play hide and seek all over the house while I was putting dinner together, <laughs> and made the kids really happy. They loved it, you know, and um, and it just gave me a break to be able to you know focus on getting a meal ready. So there's lots of little ways that you can try and get yourself some support. And I think the most important thing is to uh, not be afraid of needing that support and try to get it any way you can, basically. Yeah. And, and I like that you say, you know, not to be afraid of needing and, and it's true, like asking for support is very important, especially, you know, for me, I, I always say like parenting was never meant to be done alone, right? We've, we've always grown up in, in community. We were raised in community. We had a village, we had our elders, uh, just like your, your friend who's, you know, father-in-law came like that's really important that the multi-generational households and all that are are for that reason so you know prepare yourself and you were saying that you know it was hard for you to kind of form friendships uh before your your children went to school i would you know recommend also just looking into uh people that are expecting at the same time as you doing birth preparation classes, doing, uh, I was running for a while, uh, you know, mommy and me classes. These were, uh, you know, women that came with their newborns. And to this day, they are, you know, have big friendships. They've had other children since then. And I know that they're still connected. So seek out uh, your community. I think it's very, very important. I, I agree with that. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't manage it as well when they were young. I mostly got support from that, that parenting forum, which was very, very helpful in another way. But I, I do think that, that, that if you can, you need, you should definitely tap into those things. I think sometimes from things I've read, people think, oh, I don't know. Do I want to do this motherhood, mother thing? But, you know, you can make some really, really good friends of people who understand where you are in your life. Um, and that's just tremendously valuable along the whole way. Yeah, I I, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, um, but didn't expand on. And is this notion of our educational system? Uh, that you were saying to let children be children for a bit longer. Uh, I'd love if you could unpack that a little bit and, and what you meant by that. Well, there's layers in that. Yes, aspect. I know. Yes, I know. It, it's it's almost a whole other episode and I'm, you know. Um, so I definitely um, have a lot of problems with our educational system the way it is right now. I, I think we 
push school too early. I mean, I my children went to an elementary school near us and were very happy for, for kindergarten. Towards the end of kindergarten, they had to change schools because we moved. And then that was just like six weeks. In that six weeks, a teacher managed to crush my daughter's love of learning. <laughs> and then I had spent the whole summer getting it back again. And then we went to a new school for first grade once we bought a house. And within a couple of months, literally a month and a half, my son was so depressed. He was talking about not wanting to live anymore. And he's, you know, this is, this is a six-year-old. And my daughter was so stressed and anxious, even though she was top of the class, but she was terrified something was going to happen. And I went and looked at the school and I realized I just volunteering there. I was like, I can't, I can't fix what's going on here. I can't, I can't fix this. And so I moved them to to Montessori program. And within two months, they loved school again. They're happy again. My son, who had refused to try to learn how to read, was reading within another month. And then they just blossomed. They just took off. And there was no homework and there was no stress. It's other school. They've been telling them that they had to read for 20 minutes every night. And, you know, my son was like at this stage where it was just way too hard to try and spend a six-year-old spending 20 minutes on something. And they gave them these really, really boring readers, which is so terrible. Um, and so I'd, I'd already told him that he didn't have to do any of that stuff. <laughs> um, and so I, I think, and then so much of what what's going on in the class is not, it's not hands-on. I mean, children are born with this intense desire to learn and grow. It is just, it is just within them. And the school systems just squash it. <laughs> um, and it just breaks my heart. So one of the things that I've had to do as a parent is ferociously protect my children's love of learning. So we were in the Montessori program until third grade, and then their upper grades at this program were just not quite as good. So we decided, okay, well, we've got the basics we're going to go back to. So we tried a, a, what was supposedly a Montessori public school, but wound up not being and had some terrible problems. And so I had to pull them out again. Then we had COVID, and I finally managed to get them into the small kind of progressive public school near us. And they was great for a year, three great teachers that totally understood middle school age kids. And then at the end of the year, I think because they were just so traumatized by a bunch of COVID craziness, they all left. And then the next year has been terrible. So we're moving them again <laughs> to a, a project-based learning school next year. And But I felt like that I've just had to be kind of fiercely protective of... so. This last year, where it hasn't been as good, whereas the, the new teachers just weren't good, my my kids are trying to, to like school and trying to like it, and they're doing really well academically. And we went and we visited this project-based learning school, and after the presentation, they got up and they cornered the teacher and were peppering them with questions. They were like, I want to go here. I want to go to the school. I want to go to the school. And I could see this whole joy of learning just explode back in them. And and when you see that, when you why why would you go back to the other one? Um, and there's so many kids that are trapped in that. And and then there's a whole other level of things where we have um, we have so much knowledge about how the brain learns and works and the different ways that the brains are wired now. You know, if you say one in five kids has dyslexia, that's 20% of a classroom. And, but then you've got to add in dysgraphia, dyscalculia, um, ADD, ADHD, a couple other things here. There's a whole, by that time you're up to probably 40% of the classroom has a non-neurotypical way of learning. 
but the teachers have not been taught how to recognize and teach these students. And they're all thrown in there. And so we, we have to go all the way back to how we teach, how and what we teach our teachers. And then how and how we set up and build a school environment that's about the joy of learning. In the in Finland, they actually have joy as part of their their definition, the federal definition of part of what's supposed to happen in school is that they're supposed to create joy. <laughs> I loved that. I was like, that's so good. Um, yeah, no, that's thank you for sharing that because I I could feel it in you know in your first statement that that was something important and. And that's a lived experience. And, and, you know, your children are extremely lucky to have you be that fierce, you know, protector of the joy of learning. Well, and, for, and for us to be financially able to do it. Exactly. Private, that Montessori school was a private school and it cost a lot. <laughs> and, and not everyone can do that. And not everyone can move their kids when their school isn't giving them the extra attention that they need. So Right. Or, or parents just don't have the bandwidth to be able to, you know, do all the fighting and, and, and all of that. So yeah, thank you for that. And I'm glad that you found Montessori. It's funny when you said that, I kind of, I, 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 I released like some, some tension I had while you were describing. I went, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> uh, because that's, you know, that's why I'm a big, big advocate of, of just Montessori education in that it really is about the individual children. And it's really about nurturing that innate curiosity that they have, that we all have. We're, we're all born like that. And it's just so you sad. You talk about too. individual stuff. And then when they were, they first went to the school, that their teacher did a little assessment on each of them. And then she told each of them, if this was separately, one at a time, they, she said, well, you can do, um, you'll, these are the, the math things. You can do six problems uh, um, uh, on a worksheet, or you can do three problems on a worksheet. Which would you like to do? My daughter picks six, and my son picks three. And my, my son has got slow processing. And so that was the right thing for him. So for, he's he's got a high IQ and slow processing. So he moves very slowly through the work. But he has high accuracy, whereas my daughter is like she likes to click along real fast and then goes makes mistakes because she goes too fast. So just that little thing right there of of individualizing there and asking the child what they thought would be good for them, like revolutionary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Kathleen. Thank you uh, for for sharing all this. Any topic or or you know, words that you want to leave our listeners with that maybe we haven't touched upon? Oh, there's a million. But yes, yes. Okay. So <laughs> well, well, maybe I'll just have to have you back because I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of time for, for our listeners. So I will um, kind of wrap it up with a more personal question. And that is, uh, so how old are the twins now? They are just about 13. 13. So if you were to go back to uh, 14 years ago when you were expecting them, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Okay, I'm going to give you two things. One is, um, uh, is an unspoken truth, which is that if you're going through IVF, try really, 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 really hard for singletons. Because having twins is not physically normal. It is extremely difficult on your body. It's extremely difficult on the babies. A lot of them wind up in the NICU. Um, and, 
when you've gone through fertility treatment, you want to be able to have a baby and then just snuggle that baby. And when you have twins, you're in a constant juggle. So I strongly in in fertility treatment, at least when I was going through it, it was kind of we're aiming for one or two, but it should really be we're aiming for one. It's a gift to yourself to have one at a time because you can really snuggle that one baby down. Um, and then the other thing is what you've talked about several times here, which is that build your village, build your village, build your village. We all need a village and it's so enriching in our lives if we get in touch with other parents that become part of our village. Mm, yes, beautiful. Well, thank you for this, um, all of this wisdom and for writing this book for uh, new parents because then they'll know what to expect. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time. <laughs>